Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining this AOTA pediatric podcast, hearing from our partners, building relationships. My name is Colleen Cameron Whiting, and I'm a pediatric occupational therapist. In order to commemorate SAMHSA's Children's Mental Health Awareness Day, AOTA is offering this series of three brief stories from three different perspectives about the importance of building relationships. As occupational therapists, we know that a child's mental health is imperative to their success in their daily occupations. One of the ways as occupational therapists that we can help foster a child's positive mental health is by understanding the importance that relationships play. First, we will hear from an occupational therapist. Today, I am joined in the discussion by Mim Oxenbein, a fellow pediatric occupational therapist and Director of Education for the Star Institute for SPD. Welcome, Mim. Thank you for having me, Colleen. It's a pleasure. Mim, I understand you have a background in social work as well as occupational therapy. Can you tell us from your perspective, why do you feel relationships are so important to children's mental health? Wow. Well, relationships are they're everything, right? We humans are designed as social creatures. Everything from our prenatal development on is designed to support and encourage relational connection with others. And I do mean everything, our sensory development, our brain development, communication and motor development, everything. We as humans are made up of open dynamic systems that exchange and flow. Our physical and physiological systems are connected to our emotional and cognitive systems. We must lay the foundations early in life with stable, safe, and nurturing relationships, which impacts not just our mental health, but many other vital areas of development as well. Oh, I, I just love how you highlighted humans as open dynamic systems. I think too often we forget that the impact that we have in one area affects all others, that relationships can help support children in their occupations of learning and play. I know I've personally found that this is most evident when working with children that have experienced trauma. As we know, um, trauma impacts a child across all systems, right? Physical, emotional, Mm -hmm. cognitive. I once had a student in my school district who had experienced trauma He was really struggling with learning in the classroom and demonstrating a significant number of maladaptive behaviors. He was not feeling successful, and his teachers were having a hard time. Once I was able to educate the staff about how he needed to feel safe and connected to them before he could focus on learning, there was an important shift. The staff put aside time to connect with him, see his strengths, learn about his interests, and gain his trust. They filled out a proud moment sheet with him at the end of each day that I helped design to promote positive mental health. The teacher would write something they were proud of the student for, and the student would write his own moment about what he was proud of himself for. That way, every day they ended by highlighting something positive, even if it was a hard day. It made all the difference for him, that upfront investment in time and feeling valued, And those positive experiences and relationships helped him to build resilience. I love that. that. Yeah, and that leads me to my next question as far as how has relationship building influenced your practice and client outcomes? 
Well, much like you just discussed, Colleen, I've also seen relationships support children to find more skill and more joy, and that means more success. Um, In my sensory integrative training, developing trust and relationship were always given a very high priority. If the time is not taken up front to do that with a client, like you discussed, whether that be a child or an adolescent or an adult, there's no stable ground from which to introduce challenge. If my client does not feel safe with me, how in the world would I be able to effectively provide opportunities for growth, which inherently include challenge? So when we have a relationship, the child is more meaningfully engaged and invested in the sessions, often demonstrating more signs of enjoyment. And the gains are also much more comprehensive, impacting multiple systems in a more intense and efficient manner than if I focused on outcomes alone. We know that's the case as OTs, because in OT, you can say that finding joy would be part of intrinsic motivation. And we know it's our bread and butter that intrinsic motivation is one of the most powerful tools in the OT's tool belt. Definitely. So important. OTs, we have a well-stocked tool belt, but we know how, need to know how to apply those tools flexibly. If a child comes in and is dysregulated, you might have to consider your powerful tool of therapeutic use of self and take a moment, help to co-regulate the child first. Put aside for the moment the activity that you have planned. And this can be hard for some therapists that are focused on goals that they have to meet. It's Mm -hmm. that balance between acceptance and change. And it's hard to achieve, but it allows us such a high quality of intervention. We are more likely to achieve our ultimate goal as occupational therapy practitioners, right? Mm -hmm. Increased participation and success by our clients. That's what we're looking for. But there's so many relationships that can help foster a child's development. What are some important relationships that occupational therapists should consider? (laughs) So the easiest answer and the truest answer is all relationships Mm. are key. Our job is so intricate. It's so nuanced. It's one of the reasons so many of us have a hard time explaining what OT is and what we do, right? But Mm -hmm. every person we interact with professionally requires a level of intentionality. We need to be thoughtful. Sometimes we need to be strategic. How we interact and how it influences the treatment, the client, and the goal attainment. Clearly, You know, the therapist-client relationship is fundamental and key, but so is therapist-family member, therapist-teacher, as you so eloquently described, therapist-supervisor, therapist-aide, and even therapists and treatment team members. All of these relationships impact our therapy, whether we're aware of them or not. Definitely. I know that AOTA's vision for 2025 commits to that focus for the field of occupational therapy on collaboration, really highlighting team members learning and growing from their interactions with one another. But collaboration is so complex. I know that they define interprofessional collaborative practice, including all of these essential elements, responsibility, accountability, coordination, communication, cooperation, assertiveness, autonomy, 
mutual trust and respect. I mean, so many pieces. So mm-hmm. what steps can we take to build stronger relationships with our partners? Oh, that's such a great question. I think there's a philosophical answer and a more pragmatic answer. From the philosophical side, simply by making this something you're consciously aware of, you're probably already halfway there. The other half of that journey likely requires some reflection and introspection on your own needs, wants, and who you are and how you move through this world, both professionally and personally. And then the pragmatic answer is to get yourself a reflection strategy, such as journaling, for example, and some very good reflective supervision to help you develop insights into your own therapeutic use of self. Very wise advice. I know I've personally found the book by Renee Taylor to be very helpful called Mm -hmm. The Intentional Relationship. It has that a model that's really applicable in all settings that we work in. Mim, thank you so much for joining us today to help us highlight how OTs have such a key role in supporting children's mental health. Today, I'm joined in the discussion by Kelly Dyson, a special education teacher who has spent the past 15 years in a lower elementary public school in Massachusetts. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you for having me, Colleen. Kelly, I'm wondering, from your perspective, how do you feel students develop relationships in school with their teachers? Quality functioning relationships mean trust built over time. You can't have a real connected relationship without those two factors. You may know someone in the short term who's been nothing but kind and supportive, but you hesitate to fully open up. You're slowly letting them get to know you because the trust is still growing. There may be someone you've known for a really long time, but they've disappointed you in the past. And that's always in the back of your mind, so there's no trust. We tend to worry a lot about others liking us, but trust is more important than like when it comes to a healthy, functioning relationship. A student does not need to like you. They need to trust you. They need to know that they are safe and they can count on you. Yes, that that feeling of safety and trust is just so important. Um, but I do think it is easy for there to become a power imbalance with that dynamic relationship of student and teacher. And I'm just wondering, could you explain how you attempt to balance this? Absolutely. We need to power with our students instead of powering against them. There is an inherent power imbalance in the student-teacher relationship We are there to protect and teach, and that means that we are in charge. There are definitely times when we need to take control of a situation, but that can become a power struggle really quickly if it's not handled carefully. Power struggles are exhausting, they are time-consuming, and they tend to gain momentum until the original purpose or reason for taking that control is forgotten. We're human, and that's going to happen, But what's important is to work on preserving the relationship by talking about the reasons for the rules and explaining why there are boundaries. We think aloud to model what we teach all the time. We say, I think I need to regroup this math equation, or I'm going to reread my sentence now to check for mistakes. Applying that same idea of think aloud to social relationships with students can be powerful modeling. Instead of saying, don't run in the hallway, try, 
we need to walk in the hallway to be safe. If you run, I'm worried that you will be hurt. I care about you, and I don't want you to get hurt. Including the why when we're putting in boundaries can make the student feel like she's cared for instead of controlled. Same boundary, different feeling. When students feel like we are both in control and on their side, because both are true, the investment from the student is much, much stronger. This also can pay dividends with student-peer relationships because the language we use, they use. Yes, I, I love how you were referring to as far as investment from student. And I, I like to think about when I was working as an OT, practicing with a, that strength-based approach and thinking about highlighting what kids can do instead of just focusing on what they can't do. And so important to try to take time to learn what our students are interested in. For me, oftentimes that might be bringing in a theme to my sessions that are based off of an interest area or maybe identifying a game that they'd be interested in playing out at recess perhaps to get them more engaged. I find students are so much more motivated and more willing to expand their skills in that way. Um, but so far we've been, during this podcast, we've been focusing on building relationships with students, and I'd like to explore now how to apply these principles when building relationships between service providers. Um, what recommendations do you have for occupational therapy practitioners? How can they build collaborative relationships with educators? Well, for me, the most important thing in a collaborative, consultive kind of relationship is to build the trust and to show respect. Um, for me, that starts by learning the teacher and learning the classroom. The more time you can observe and learn about the classroom setting and the demands, the more effective and supportive you can be as a consultant. Um, consider what are the most successful and effective or challenging and ineffective parts of the week according to the classroom teacher. Their priorities may not be yours, and in the role of consultant, there will be so much that you don't observe directly. Um, I would encourage people to listen as much as they can and to give the teacher and the staff time to talk and ask questions. Oh, so I hear you do then it's a lot of like active listening with open-ended questions. Um, I think that dedicating time to understanding each other's priorities, which you mentioned, is crucial when collaborating with the teacher. I've also found that my strongest collaborations with teachers started out with just one student, and that one student having success with my interventions and suggestions, that it really helps with buy-in. But sometimes I know going into a classroom, though, when I'm feeling that the best accommodation for a student is not going to be added to the teacher's routine easily. And I know a change in the culture of the classroom is really difficult. How do you accomplish your goal while maintaining that respectful collaboration? Yeah, I, I try to be considerate um, and I try to think about whether the recommendation is practical, is it sustainable, um, and is it respectful of the role of the classroom teacher? Um, if at all possible, I try to be flexible in my thinking and come up with a way to make the recommendation work for the teacher. Uh, however, it's not always practical or possible to adjust the needs of the students to fit the classroom as it is. 
And there are times when we need to ask professionals to change what they've done for years. Um, this is hard and uncomfortable. Um, but if you are informed about the classroom situation and respectful that this is another professional with a different role from yours, um, you can help make the process collaborative and practical, which in turn means better, more consistent follow-through with those recommendations. Good collaborations make both or all parties change in response to each other. I think it's, yeah, it's important to think almost like a reflective practice to ask yourself questions in those moments, like what would the impact be if I did it this way or what would it look like if it happened this way? And one strategy I have personally found to be successful, especially if there's not extra staffing available in the room, I may try to find a way to make the accommodation be used whole class. So for example, if I have, I'm looking for a child that um, instead of having them go off and take a movement break, could the whole class participate and then everyone benefit from it? I also know I try to use goal attainment scaling with my teachers for my occupational therapy goals so that the focus is really on participation benefits that are seen in the classroom as opposed to just an isolated achievement of skill. And then we can together monitor that student performance and progress and implementation of any needed interventions. Yeah, look for the biggest bang for your buck with recommendations, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Kelly, um, thank you so much for joining us today to help us highlight how to build positive, respectful, and collaborative relationships in the school setting. Um, we just learned so much from listening to our partners. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. Today, I'm joined in the discussion by Carrie Ann Kimball, parent and owner of The Whole Child, whose mission is to support the healthy development of children and to empower their families. Welcome, Carrie Ann. Thank, thank you for having me, Colleen. Carrie Ann, I'm wondering, from a parent's perspective, why do you feel relationships are so important to children's mental health? Well, relationships are the basis of a child feeling secure in their world. Healthy family bonds are the first relationships that help the child feel safe and secure, to take risks and help them form ideas about culture and behaviors. Then friendships help them further define themselves as a peer, help them understand age-appropriate play and behaviors, and this helps them further develop their own self-concept as they begin to compare themselves with peers. Teachers are critical in helping children develop their self-concept further. And if the child feels safe in their relationship with their teacher, they will then take more risks academically and push themselves a bit more. If a teacher understands and accepts a child fully, the child can feel this, and it helps them develop a healthier self-esteem. I think, yes, it's just, it's so important to recognize that those different kinds of relationships can really help a child develop their self-concept, that the value that they place on themselves and their self-image are often grown through these relationships. And as a parent, you know, you're, you're providing the foundation. When they are babies, you're really focused on that serve and return, the I smile and then you smile. And then as they get older, playful interactions with your child allows them to experience strong emotions, but in a safe, connected setting. And when they become school age, a whole new host of opportunities for growth, supported through relationships is really presented. 
So would you be willing to share, I'm wondering, a little bit about your journey of being a parent? How has seeing your child as individuals and providing unconditional support helped to foster their growth and development? Sure. Um, Well, my children both have special needs. My daughter has significant anxiety. My son has autism spectrum disorder. And their relationships with their parents, knowing that we accept and love them unconditionally, has been critical and getting them through some tough times. They know that we will always be honest with them and that we're going to help them see themselves clearly. So for both of my children, when friendships were unhealthy or when teachers did not encourage, accept, or understand them as individuals, the emotional impact was clearly negative and broad in their overall emotional wellness. So we saw isolation and lack of interest, less engagement, less effort. We saw them being less likely to believe in themselves. We heard some negative self-talk. They had lower energy, lower affect, and having some of those feelings of hopelessness. So when they, But when they aligned themselves with good, healthy friendships and had skilled, compassionate teachers, they were both much more joyful overall and pushed themselves to be their best. So they were more engaged in life. Um, they were experienced more enjoyment in their activities in day-to-day life. They had better energy, more affect. We were hearing positive words about themselves, and they were better able to work through problems um, as they can see them as temporary and something that they can solve or overcome. I know from working in early intervention how parents really love being part of the sessions and learning from what you are doing. There's such a collaboration, but oftentimes as children get older, there's more of a distance between the parents and their school-based or their clinic services. I'm wondering how you have felt most connected to what your child was doing in therapy or in school, and how have your child's providers Try to make an effort to develop a relationship or a partnership with you for the shared goal of helping your child. Well, adults working with my children have made incredible impacts, both positive and negative, depending mostly on how they connected and communicated with each of my children. And it really is essential for service providers to know how important parent support and communication really is. So whether that's writing in a log, um, being responsive to emails and phone calls, I need, as a parent, I need them to hear my concerns and work with me to support my children. My son continues to make exponential progress in all areas because he's in an environment with skilled and trustworthy professionals and has developed and maintained several healthy friendships that are pure joy for him. And he has an honest sense of self um, and has developed excellent coping skills for working through frustration. He still has a long um, way to go, but part of that is his diagnosis, and he will always have things to work on. But, you know, don't we all if we're honest? (laughs) That is very true. Um, The development of your sense of self is such a lifelong journey. It's never done. Um, Right. Yeah, I love how you highlight the written communication being a format for helping parents feel connected to a child's day or a therapy session. I know sometimes there isn't time to connect, but really that written piece, I know parents of my clients really love when I send them maybe an email, um, like a video clip of them. I've also used the app of Seesaw with parents. It's very user-friendly. That's been helpful. 
In regards to communications for the home setting, I personally have found it really important to consider the home culture. So I'm asking a lot of questions about what their routines are, what are the dynamics in play, like siblings or parents getting home late for work. As an occupational therapist, I always see my suggestions for strategies being so much more widely used if I'm taking the home culture into consideration. It's also imperative to involve parents in the problem solving. If they understand the reasoning behind your recommendations for the home, the more likely they will feel empowered to problem solve the next time a situation arises. Right. So what would you say are some key strategies that you've found in your pra practice advocating for parents that really help us to open that line of communication between parents and service providers? So through my professional and personal experiences, um, I discovered a tremendous need for support to families who have a child with special needs and whose needs may not always be adequately understood. Most disabilities affect children in all areas of life, not just school, which means it also affects their families. So families then need support to understand their child's needs so that they can advocate for them and to foster their child's optimal development in and out of school. So first I listen to the parents. I truly listen to their concerns. I ask questions and I listen more. And I really work hard to truly identify the essential questions that need to be solved for the sake of the child, regardless of who that means we should ask or how we should seek to find those answers. That would be the next step. And then I found that observing the child myself, as well as interviewing all parties and reviewing all evaluations that might be available, really helps to provide clarity between all perspectives. And so I always keep in mind and remind other team members that we're each working from our own perspective, and I try to help develop a broad view together of the whole child. And this can help all parties view the child more clearly, so through thorough communication across parties, we have uncovered some really critical things. For example, um, I worked with a 15-year-old girl who actually did not have ADHD, as had been thought for years, but instead she actually had dyslexia. And if we had not stepped back, she would have been receiving the wrong supports and interventions. I, I really like, love, love your point about looking at the whole, whole child. Oftentimes we're, we are looking through our own lens and sometimes we just need to step back and consider others' viewpoints. And strong relationships between service providers and families are associated with improved behavior and higher self-esteem. So it's really definitely worth intentionally developing. Carrie Ann, thank you so much for joining us today to help us highlight how to build positive, respectful, and collaborative relationships with parents. I appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. And that concludes our podcast series. I hope that you have enjoyed them and that they have raised some new ideas for your occupational therapy practice. By putting a focus on the development of relationships in your work and recognizing the power of collaboration with your partners, you will be empowered to not only develop your client's social emotional capacity, but really expand your impact as a clinician. Have a great day. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Judy. 
The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.